welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermo Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. So, Dr. Elizabeth Wayne, Assistant Professor in Chemical and Biomedical Engineering at the Carnegie Mellon University, is my guest on the podcast today. So Liz's research focuses on macrophage engineering for cancer immunotherapy and nanotechnology. And as a fellow podcaster and 2017 TED Talk fellow, I'm honored to sit down and talk to you today, Liz, for this special podcast episode in collaboration with Black in Immuno Week. So thanks again for coming on and talking to me today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, I suppose we'll start in. I'm so interested to know, you know, what Liz Wayne was like when you were in school and growing up in Mississippi, what that was like. And, you know, did you always know you wanted a career in science? (laughs) Sorry, I just laughed thinking about like, what was Liz Wayne like as a kid? Um, So I love to read. Um, I thought reading was like a better television, actually, because you could start and stop whenever you wanted to. And you could kind of picture people any way you wanted to picture them. I liked math and science. I think I was just I was good at that kind of stuff. But I also really liked history and reading about people and things and places. The History Channel is like my favorite TV show. So you're starting to get a picture of like what I was as a kid. (laughs) Um, I think I was the kind of smart that was annoying, you know, to my brothers. (laughs) When I was in sixth grade, I did a science fair project on nuclear fusion and nuclear fission. So looking at the basis behind the atomic bombs and really the early 1900s when we had just discovered so much about physics that kind of was world turning. Like we thought we had discovered everything. And then we realized that like ether doesn't exist, that they're not a real and that, um, you know, there were subatomic particles. And, you know, I thought all of that was super fascinating. So I did a science fair project on like these things. And I remember, well, I re- the first thing I remember is that because I would go to the library and my family didn't have internet at the time. And so we go to the library and I'm looking up how to make an atomic bomb. <laughs> where is the uranium or where's the plutonium, right? Cause you know, either uranium 235 or plutonium 236, you know, you can get these, you know, critical mass reactions and stuff. And I remember thinking, like, I probably would have been picked up if I had done that, like, any other time, but, like, late 90s, you know? (laughs) Like, what a weird thing for, like, a 12-year-old to be typing into the internet. I should have been doing, like, you know, other things, maybe. And I, I won first place in my science fair. And I think since then I had a love of science and I, I love of physics and I really wanted to learn more, but there wasn't, weren't any more classes or things to learn. So I went to the library and learned as much as I could, just kind of waiting for my opportunity to actually learn more about physics because we didn't, I was in sixth grade. So we really just had a chapter about atoms and then the rest of the stuff I learned about nuclear physics was like at the library. So yeah, it was just me building my time telling people I'm going to be a physicist. And they're like, is that a doctor? No, that's a physician, but I get it. But I want to be a physicist. I'm going to be a physicist. And so, you know, 
college, like, all right, I'm in physics. I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn if I can really be a physicist, like all those people I've been reading about all these years. Uh, so that was me as a kid, determined, interested in weird things, or I think everything is interesting. Maybe a little bit of a, a smart ass, sorry, a smart Alec. You can erase that. Know it all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just like, like to try things. And when you're in sixth grade, how old are you? Because, you know, in, in Ireland, we've obviously a different system. So I'm trying yeah, to get, um, I want to say it was 11 or 12. It was one of those ages. And you were looking up at how to make an atomic bomb. I really was. I really was. <laughs> yeah, I was like doing some interesting things and then trying to find any book. There were maybe two books that actually had like some description of like nuclear fission in it. But then there were just biographies. And I thought the biographies are, were interesting because, you know, remember I liked history. And so reading about how there was this like this person discovered something weird in their lab experiment. And then they realized, well, maybe there's a subatomic particle. Like, boom, we've got the electron by, I think, Robert Rutherford. And then we've got, like, neutrons by Lise Metner, who actually never won the Nobel Prize, I believe. Could be wrong about that. But it was very incremental in doing, uh, discovering all these principles. And then, you know, now we're like, let's make a bomb out of it because we're humans. <laughs> um, like, oh, no, the Germans are going to do it as well. And the Americans, they have the Manhattan Project and all this stuff is happening. And then and it just kind of changed our whole world. And it really solidified for me this idea that what happens in the science lab really can play out politically. Um, science has always been political since I was 11, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I knew this and I thought, okay, well, this is something I want to do because I think you can have a real big impact. And probably the last thing I would say about this is I definitely remember kind of like reading about these people and thinking, wow, I wish I had been born in the 1900s and I could have been like been a part of this really exciting race. And then my next thought was like, mm, no, you don't wish you were born in 1900. <laughs> you're a woman, you're black. You no, you're not like from, you probably wouldn't have been in the, those kind of educated circles to be allowed to have to participate in that regardless of your interest. And then I thought, oh, that's a terrible thing to think. But I'm like, mm, but it's true. I think every generation hopes that the next set of 11 year olds don't feel that way that um and and actually because I was going to ask you because I, I saw on I think your website that your um grandmother was a science teacher so did she oh, yeah. <laughs> did she have like a big impact on you like was she kind of encouraging this like love of physics so that's interesting well my grandmother died when I was five oh. so I didn't really interact I don't like the memories I have of her of her are, are of her having cancer. Uh, but what I know is that um, at the time that I was doing the science fair project, and here's a little bit of history. The I lived in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, and the middle school was actually the formerly the black high school during segregation. And so um, and then the high school was the white school. And so if you walk through the halls, I, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but you can see like these class portraits of like, you know, class of 2000, you know, you can see the pictures of everyone. And so if you walk down the halls, you see it was called Holtz Hall. Um, and you can see it's just all black people. And then, you know, there's a transition at some point. So my, my grandmother taught at the same school that I was walking in the halls at, that my mom was now teaching at, but I knew that she was a science teacher. That's what I had been told. Um, so I think it was one of those things where you're a kid and you don't really know what's happening. 
or you don't really think twice about certain things. And then um, when I was writing that stuff on my website, I actually was uh, graduating. I was doing the final parts of my PhD defense. And, you know, I'm thinking about writing my acknowledgements. And, you know, I have grown old enough to experience heartache and pain and really kind of reflecting on my own um, the women in my life, my aunts and my mother's and my grandmother's experience. And simultaneously, my relatives are also telling me the truth about things, <laughs> um, like little stories that you're like, oh, that's why that happened. Or like, I did not know that. OK, you know, things make sense now. But you also have like the maturity to understand it. And so I think that having this like, well, you know, your your grandmother was a scientist or she wanted to be this but she ended up being just a school teacher science, right? Or my mom wanted to be, <laughs> she wanted to be like an actor. She wanted to be a dancer. It was like, I thought it was really cool. <laughs> and um, she, she still tries. It's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of feeling like um, thinking about all the things that the women in my life had wanted to be and thinking about the reasons why those didn't happen. Thinking about what kind of pride they had in me and how it wasn't just about me personally. Um, although sometimes it feels like it's a lot of pressure to be all the things they want me to be. Mm. That's, I think that's probably another story laid into there, but uh, I didn't know my grandmother. I see pictures. I can see, I saw pictures of her when I walked through the hallways when it was an all black school and I pictured her doing science. And I thought about what it meant for me to be white lab coat doing the science and, you know, at some point being in the pictures about the scientific discoveries and being on the authorship of the papers, writing them. And, and, you know, of course, now as a professor where like I am doing and I'm saying the science and like, what does that mean? I, I always I still think about that. Yeah, God, you know, it's mad to think that, you know, obviously you're saying that your your grandmother would have wanted that's kind of the life she probably would have wanted. And yeah, I'm sure she would be so proud, you know, to, to see you now. Definitely. I hope so. And so talk me through, you know, you know, you want to do physics in, in college. How do you go about doing that? Um, <clears throat> so um, I mentioned that my high school, my the school that I went to didn't have physics. And honestly, they didn't really have good math either. And what really changed was that I got into the Mississippi School for Math and Science. In the states, there are 14 states that have these public residential high schools for, I guess, their gifted students um, to study math and science. So there I was able to really, you know, take differential equations, um, advanced calculus. And also I took physics and I took modern physics and, you know, two semesters of physics, chemistry, biology. I did a lot of stuff that I thought was fun. Everyone was like, nerd, but it was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I still thought, okay, I still want to do physics. And so I applied to colleges and I said, I wanted to study physics, but I think you really, once you get into the school, you have the option of changing. I think I, I was, physics is held in the college of arts and sciences, which I find kind of funny that I have an arts and science degree in physics. <laughs> so it just look, actually looks like bachelor of arts is what it shows up on my, my, uh, transcripts. I was always, I was pretty set. I just kept like, I'm going to do physics. And it's like, so where's the physics building? Where's the physics building? Let me just click off. What, what classes should I be taking? I, I got a mentor in the physics department and I was pretty much set. I mean, if anything, I was thinking, do I want to do pre-med? Do I want to do like a medical degree or do I want to get a PhD in physics? Uh, so I think I was also weird that way. I don't think everyone kind of has that kind of 
laser focused vision. And I don't think you have to either, just to be clear, you don't have to have that kind of like when I was 12 years old or whatever, I wanted to do this thing, but, but that was true for me. And at what point did you decide then that you wanted to do a PhD and how did you find that experience? Mm. You know, I've, I've just finished my own PhD. I finished up in the start of May. So I'm, thank you. <laughs> so I'm fresh out and, you know, I, I found it really tough at the end. I thought the last year was really hard, but yeah, I'm interested to hear, you know, your opinions or how your experience was. Mm. Post-traumatic PhD syndrome. It's real. <laughs> it is real. The best PhDs um, are anticlimactic, right? Like where you kind of get your degree and they just kind of give it to you. It feels like they're like just in here, my child. <laughs> you can't hear, but I'm like raising like I, like Lion King Simba in the air, like my child is here. And they're like, what? All that work? You maybe do all that stuff and you're just gonna like click a button? What? <laughs> like, <laughs> anyway, so I I guess I like to listen and look at people and their experiences. So when I was in high school, I thought, oh, I should get a PhD. And it was really I, maybe a trivial observation, but but kind of in line with most people in that they see someone who has a PhD and they see themselves in that and they want that. So um, that was what happened for me. And this is kind of random, I think, but my grandmother on my father's side, had passed away when I was, so I was 15. My dad has 17 siblings. Wow. A lot. So it's a huge extended family. Some, I don't see them all every year. And some I have not really met at that point in my life. Cause we had kind of, we didn't live in, nobody lived in the same place anymore. And so here we are at this funeral um, and we're seeing all of these extended family members. And my mom is just bragging like, oh, my daughter wants to study physics. She wants to be physics. And as it turns out, I have a lone cousin who has a PhD in physics. Wow. And so, yeah. And so this is kind of weird. So I meet my a cousin that I didn't know I had. He's, my, he's an older cousin. So it's not like we're both 16 or something. He's he has a PhD. And he has a job. And so after that, he invited me to visit. And my, my, me and my brother went there for a summer and he worked at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And I guess the U.S. people will know, but it, it was really cool. I was like, wait, he comes home and has lunch with us. We get to walk around his lab. I don't know what it is, but all these machines are wearing and like whizzing and there's like metal foil everywhere. He does some like condensed polymer physics stuff. I'm like, this just looks cool. It's like he's not wearing a fancy suit and he gets to ask cool questions all day long. Like, this is what I want to do. This looks really, really cool. Why would I do a normal job? I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do this one. This one looks way cooler. And so I thought, oh, okay, he has a PhD. I'll get a PhD. That's what I'm going to do. This is probably a good point in our conversation to, you know, talk to me about the whole area of cancer immunotherapy, about your research, about, you know, uh, immune cell mediated drug delivery. There's a lot of things to unpack here. And I'm really excited because, as I said to you before, we'd kind of come on air. You work with who, anyone who knows me will know my favorite cell type, the macrophage. So, yeah, I so suppose talk to you about the field maybe before we, begin, before we get into the ins and outs of your research. Well, since you asked, <laughs> amino engineering is this amazing field. It is relatively new, but really everything we've been working on in cancer and drug delivery has kind of been building up to this moment. Amino engineering would be summarizing anything that involves trying to use engineering principles to modulate the immune system, to have a better outcome for health overall. 
And it is really interesting because it's this hodgepodge of what's the immune system doing? Like, it's like us finally as a field acknowledging that cancer is an immunological disease. Um, in other words, when you think about uh, previous therapies like chemotherapy, um, well, one, we were kind of just doing whatever worked. And if it worked, we just kept giving that drug and then hoping that the tumor goes before the patient does because of all the toxicities related to chemotherapy. Or we thought that the main mechanism of action was that the chemotherapy was targeting the cancer cell itself. And then there was this transition in thought to, well, maybe the drugs aren't really always targeting the cancer. And maybe we should be targeting the environment that the tumor is in to make that environment not permissive to cancer growth. And so thinking about what are those stromal cells? What are those other cells there? And what's happening? And then thinking about, this is why I think macrophages are so fascinating because they really love tumors. <laughs> they can make up, um, you know, depending what clinical data you're looking at, anywhere from as low as 30% to as high as like 80, 90% of a whole tumor mass. If you were to take them out, they will be filled with macrophages. And so immunotherapy is about how we can take what we know about the immune environment of cancer and make this better. How do we engineer systems that help the immune cells perform their job better? So some of the really like big pioneering examples of this would be the CAR T-cell therapy, these therapies where we engineer T-cells to actually want to go to the tumor and then specifically target cancer cells and kill them. And so I think of it as kind of um, like uh, you're trying to transform a T-cell into the Hulk. And so that's what the engineering of it is to make it more Hulk-like. And so you may, and also to give them like a good theme song like that. I always think of that turn down for what song or just any song where it's like everyone's just going crazy and they're partying for a long time. They're always super active. It's kind of like you want that to happen. You want the T-cells to kind of be on and doing their function and doing it well. And so that's really fascinating uh, because you're basically taking the T-cell and you're saying you were okay before, but now we want you to be better so that you can actually kill the tumor, eradicate the tumor. And you can see that across all the spectrum of immunotherapy where you're saying, what are those immune cells good at doing? What are they supposed to be doing in the, in the environment or in that disease? And how can we actually make them do their function better so you can actually clear the disease. So for T cells, it's re-engineering them to be more cytotoxic or more persistent in that cytotoxicity. B cells, it's engineering the antibodies themselves or they're more specific. Like you can think of drugs like remdesivir that's been used in COVID-19. And the idea of that is trying to actually release more of those cytokines that are coming from the other, some um, CD4, or CD regulatory T cells that dampen the response. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to engineer responses of immune cells and actions of immune cells to have some health impact. And I think it's just super cool to think about. Yeah, and it's kind of like using what uh, what we have in our own body instead of introducing something external. You know, I, I've seen, you know, you, you say everything we need or we need to fight cancer is in our body. And it's such an interesting concept because it, it's true. It's just we need to figure out how to tap into that. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so sorry, I'm just you, you watched it. Yeah. But I kind of posed this question of like, what if everything we need to fight cancer is already inside of us? but we just kind of need to reorganize it and give it the right direction. And then for engineering, it's how do we systematically optimize those functions on the cell? So we're making like 
making our own little robo cop here, or I guess we're, we're hulking up as it were. So I, yeah, again, the whole field is fascinating what we're doing. It really is like, I guess I love analogies. I really do. But I'm thinking about, um, I don't know if you've seen the superhero movie, the Avengers and seen like the end and it's like all the superheroes come together in the end. They're like, okay, we've got our differences, but now if we come together, we all have our different skills and we're going to make this work. And a lot of like, a lot of like um, uh, the efforts behind immunotherapy are the immunologist saying, okay, we actually know what's happening now because <laughs> it hasn't always been true. And then the material scientists are like, you know what? I can add a receptor if you want to, I can do this. <laughs> and, um, you know, like the tissue engineer is going like, Hey, I know how to keep cells alive for a really long time. Let's get together. And then you have all these people who are like, yes, let's get together and let's do this. And then the drug delivery people are like, I know how to formulate it. And then they make that team and then they beat Thanos and then, or, you know, we, we try to beat Thanos. Yeah. And so it's really fascinating to see how interdisciplinary this is and how really you can't really advance the overall goal of improving like human health without having each of the people on the team. And I, I really find that interesting, which if you think about my early childhood fascinations about the Manhattan Project and things and like think about the history of everything, you know, kind of like makes sense that I'm like really invested in the story of science as well as the process of science. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, you know, the kind of tagline for this podcast is, you know, the stories that shape the science. So it's kind of I, I can I totally buy into buy into that as well. Um, and actually, because I just realized, talk to me before I actually get into your research, how um, someone who was a physicist by degree switched kind of field or merged fields, I suppose. And now, you know, you're bioengineering, immunology is thrown in there too, cancer biology. So talk to me how you made, how you merged all those together. Well, um, this is going to, it's going to sound both elitist and both just like what every other physicist is, as you've known probably has sounded like. Physics teaches you how to model the real world. So physics is the physical world. How do you understand the physical world around you? And you really, in practice, are thinking about how do you take things that are very complicated, break them down to their simplest parts, and then build back the complication in that system? How do you make those approximations? So a lot of physicists kind of have this perception that if they know physics, then they know everything, right? Like we're the mother science. Um, everything stems from us, bow to us, right? Where we think we can understand chemistry, we can understand biology, we can write essays because essays have structure. And if I understand structure, I can do that. So I think that um, that ethos definitely kind of resonated with me of thinking about, well, like, what are the basic principles here and what's really happening and how can I translate them? So I definitely um, did that, that like philosophically, that was why I thought like, well, physics is useful. Quantifying bio biological processes is useful. Um, I started by doing optics and like building these microscopes and thinking, oh my God, if I know how light or photons travel through matter, I now understand properties of that material. And then if I make a 3D pattern of it, I have an image. And so it was just really cool for me. And then the imaging went to cancer. So what I want to image with my newfound, you know, belief, like understanding of how photons translate to functional images of tissue, I started applying it to cancer. That was the project. I, and I did that. 
And then that led to, hey, here's a cool opportunity. Someone was making drugs. Do you know how to like help us see our drugs in the body? I'm like, yes, I do. Let's do that. And I was like, oh my goodness, look at these immune cells. Oh my God, they're doing such cool things. They're amazing. I didn't know we had, I didn't know they could do that. I know they're, they're doing that in our bodies right now. They're just like doing all this stuff and we don't even ask it to do it. And it just does it. And so I would say that I follow the interesting questions. Yeah. And whenever I felt like I had reached this point where I needed to learn more to understand my model that I was making, I just went to a different discipline to learn that. So that was, that was kind of how it started, but it's all kind of maybe some physics elitist thing where we think we can, we think we can understand everything. So, so, and we just say, it's not really like a, we changed field. It's like, we just added (laughs) another prefix to our field. Yeah, but I mean, you're building, I suppose, on your experience the whole time. So it's, uh, you know, because any bioengineers I've spoke to, the thing that strikes me is that it is so interdisciplinary. And I mean, that collaboration is, as you just spoke about earlier, is so key, as in the Avengers have to assemble, we all have to kind of come together. And yeah, so talk to me, because I know that you're interested as well in like, you know, immune mediated delivery of, of drugs. So maybe break that down for me or people who are listening as to why we might want that and, you know, how that could benefit a patient. Okay. So your immune system takes care of you without even knowing what you, what you really even knowing what it's really doing. Um, I think of your friend, your immune system as like a group of friends that are all working together to have a controlled response. And that response, you know, for the analogy to work would be like going to the party or going to do an event or like keeping the friend group together. And when the friend group functions well, everything else is also happy. And so the beauty of this is that your body knows when there's an infection, they know when there's an injury probably with higher, no, not probably with higher sensitivity than any imaging that we have. And so they are able to sense when there are um, things that are out of place or like when there's bleeding, when there's inflammation, sterile inflammation, and your immune cells will migrate to that area. They will recruit other friends as they need, and they will come and they will try to restore the balance in your system to get rid of that inflammation or infection. And so Um, Think of your body in terms of drug delivery and think of it as a pinball machine where you can drop the ball in, you can swallow it, or you could have an injection, but it's all trying to get through all of these random systems and it's kind of passive. So if you've ever played pinball, you know that when you put the ball in the machine, you don't really control where that ball goes once it's in the machine. Like you're watching it bounce all over and like, no, please just go to the right place. And that's a lot like how drug delivery is when you, you, you take a pill. You take the pill hoping it gets to your arm, but it still has to go through your intestines and your stomach and your intestines, all this other stuff. Now, we also with drug delivery, we can coat those drugs and we can say, well, let me, what if I put some sticky things on that ball so that when it goes into the pinball machine, it sticks in certain places, or maybe I want to make it heavier so it leans more to the left and the right. And that's effectively what we try to do with drug delivery with like release capsules, extended release capsules, or we coat them with things that we hope will go into the longer deliver. And they work, but they also are, again, still we're watching it go to other places, mm-hmm. like kind of helplessly. So the reason why you would want to take advantage of the fact that your immune cells are already migrating to places of inflammation, uh, that they can respond to cues in the body and that they know how to assemble a massive response is that they have active migration to places of disease, whereas 
um, drugs that we have kind of have the passive pinball kind of effect here. If you were able to attach a drug to the immune cell, this would actually help you now make the path of your drug the same path the immune cell takes to localize and accumulate in a tissue that has disease. And like, would there be any worry that it would affect the immune cell negatively? Yeah. And that's why it's called engineering. (laughs) So the immuno part here is just knowing that um, if I cut myself, the first cells that show up on the scene are the neutrophils and then the macrophages come. And then if it's really, really bad that, you know, the adaptive parts of your immune system will come on, the platelets come to kind of if there's bleeding to close the wound. So there's this whole orchestrated response. And so with engineering, you have to, the engineering part of this is like, well, how much drug can you load onto a cell before you change their function? How much, um, how toxic is it and how we optimize that and different materials we use. So the other thing I'll mention here is that when I think about delivery, I kind of put them in two categories. Um, The first one would be the one that we just described, which is passive. And the idea is that you really want them to be like your personalized Uber drivers that just kind of know where to go and you're not really changing their route. You're just kind of hitting, hitching a ride onto them. So you've also, people have also used the terms backpacking and like hitchhiking in this example. And I think there's a second category of this type of drug delivery where you actually say, no, I actually want the nanoparticle to interact with that immune cell and change its function. Like maybe you do want a particle that was going left to say, oh, no, 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 no. Now you should go right. Like don't go to the brain. Because actually the problem is that you go to the brain and cause damage unintentionally. (laughs) We want you to instead go to the lung or we want you to go to the liver or we want you to not go anywhere, right? So I think trying to, the beauty of amino engineering is that you can then think about, you can tailor your kind of approach to what's happening in the disease. And you can either have that passive delivery where you just think that the immune cell needs a little extra support Or you can also tailor it to say, I actually do want this particle or this drug to kind of have some functional change that then makes the cell more effective at doing some other function. And like, you know, to model this, do you use mouse models or do you use biopsy samples, um, I suppose, to to assess whether this could be uh, therapeutically relevant? Mm-hmm. The whole range. Um, the first part would be I do these kind of uh, spheroid, tr- like organoid models where you will not organoid, but cell culture models that are co-cultured and kind of like 3D format. And here I have these strategies where we can actually tell the the transfer of the drug and the kind of effect that that drug has. So in other words, if you want to use immune cells for drug delivery, you should know how, many, how much of that drug is loaded per cell. How, and how long that drug is attached to that cell. Now, if I'm co-culturing them with other cells and I want to measure the transfer of the secondary effect, then you want to be able to, to monitor both of those, that where the actual drug is, and then what is that conversion rate to either is it being transferred to other cells or is it causing some secondary effect that you want to be able to measure? So the, those are really effectively pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic properties that we measure And so I have some in vitro models that allow us to do that type of analysis that will really help us understand what kind of loading conditions we need that we can then apply to some in vivo animal models. And like how, you know, how far off are we, you know, getting this into into patients and how would this, I suppose, revolutionize or impact cancer patients? Because would this be something that you would give people in early stages or would it be more geared towards people who have 
failed other therapies and, and maybe they have an aggressive form of cancer? So the first question was asking how far we are away from some of these. And what I'd like to add here, um, the kind of ideals of targeting macrophages and, and macrophages are the, the particular cells I, I like to, to target. You know, some of, some of these techniques are already being employed. I think the way that I'm describing it as like its actual own class might be interesting. So there are drugs that try to either, either deplete macrophages from entering the tumor. And so that is a way of, again, having that drug target the cell, but then making the cell do some other function. So some of these things already exist. You could, and you could also envision CAR T-cell therapy being something where you then you have a therapeutic or some sort of drug or nanoparticle that changes the function. So some of these things are already happening. Um, the idea of actually just coding the nanoparticles with the drug coding the nanoparticles with the immune cell <laughs> and, and looking at that, that I am not sure. I have not recently looked at the kind of what the clinical, what's in, currently in the pipeline for clinical trials. And in terms of my own lab, which just started, those are some things I would like to pursue, but we have not yet gotten to a point of pursuing. But I think in terms of being able to really engineer all any type of immune cell we have like we're already doing this yeah. and we're already going there there are two fda approved uh, u.s fda approved car t-cell therapy drugs we have checkpoint inhibitors we're working on car macrophages mm -hmm. and there already are like liposomal formations of drugs that kind of intend inhibit intentionally target macrophages so i think we're on our way there um the second question you had was sort of about like which population would they benefit or where would they go? Now, what I think is fascinating about this one, I think it's fascinating because it kind of is not inherently, it's not solely a drug delivery question, but it's also kind of a strategic, how do you get drugs approved question? So consider this, if, if a patient comes in, um, it's sort of somewhat unethical to say, we're not going to give you our first or second or third standard, standard FDA approved line of treatments so that we can see this experimental drug works on you, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to take the ones that work first. So what usually ends up happening is that when a new drug is kind of coming online, we it would either do a clinical trial that has a combination with another existing drug that's already approved, or you might give this drug after they failed, if they're refractory to the other drugs. So typically they start at the bottom with patients that have been refractory to the standard treatments and seeing if they can work and then try to work their way up the rung. And that's in terms of getting approval. So I think those kinds of things are interesting. And the other thing is that um, we're dealing more with personalized medicine. And I think it's not just that we think everything needs to be tailored for every person. It's the reality that cancer in itself is just a, a, a disease that's so specific. And it really isn't feasible to make a drug that works for like hundreds of thousands of people and more like for tens of thousands at a time. And so when you're thinking about which patient needs what kind of therapy, you know, you have to have some assay or markers to say, well, how many macrophages do they have in their environment? What kind of immune environment do they have? Because that will tell you what type of immune cells you should deliver or what type of delivery would work. So my guess is that we, we do know that based on if you have like a pro-inflammatory macrophage environment, then you are already going to have good correlations and you might be more susceptible to having T-cell therapies because your T-cells might live longer there, the CD8 ones at least. And um, I guess the summary of this is that the combination of computational like antigen mapping, patient like data omics 
would help you decide which patient needs what thing. Yeah. And I also, you know, saw in your TED talk that, you know, you were saying this system could be applied not only to cancer as a disease, you know, there, this is far reaching implications if, if, it, if it did work, you know, um, with other diseases. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I, I like the macrophages so much because, you know, it's like all diseases start to point back to them and they're, they're in balance. And how do we, and I really think about how we can use nanoparticles or other types of like engineered materials to bring them back into balance. Uh, I, I think of macrophages as that they're that person in your friend group that you think is kind of useless because they just go with the flow. They just kind of want everyone to be happy. They want to balance out like your polarizing friends. And you think like, well, they never have a, and they never have like a, a decision or like a point, but when they're not in the group, everything's in chaos. There's no one to make fun of anymore. You know, everyone feels awkward. No one knows how to talk anymore. And you're like, where's Susan? You know, like, where's, where's insert person, you know? <laughs> and so that's what macrophages are. Like when they're there and they're working well, like the transitions are happening, things are functioning. And when it's not like, it's all coming down. So every immune, every organ in your body has their own specialized set of macrophages, Right. And I still, you know, every friend group has their own macrophage. You could probably think of like, who's a macrophage in your friend group. <laughs> and then who's decided toxic T cell that just like wants to party all the time. Doesn't know when to stop because it's COVID. <laughs> and then where's that C -reg CD reg cell that just never wants to go out and do anything. You know, just just like couch potatoes all over the place. And so your body, your organs all have this. And I think that, so when you trace back, most of the diseases, you can see that there's some sort of breakdown in immune cell function that's kind of causing this. Like those analogies, I know one particular person in my lab will absolutely love them. I mean, I think a lot of people will love them, but I know that Achilles in my lab will find that hilarious. <laughs> oh no. I have this whole spiel now, which I, I, I kind of started in the middle for you, but like, so when I talk about the, I'll tell you though, because I think you'll appreciate it. I was talking about the friend group so your immune cells are as friend groups. So imagine that there's always that one person in your group that always knows when everything is happening. Like for whatever reason, they're just on all the listservs. So they know, they know when the faculty meeting is over and the food is now available. They know when like the library has a discount or like, you know, if the first 50 people get a free meal or something, they know when there's a party, they just, for whatever reason, they know when things are happening. So that's your CD4 cell, your T cell. And so that's like antigen. They're getting information from the dendritic cell that, hey, something's happening. And so then the CD4 cell's goal is to figure out how do I get the rest of my friends on board with this party that I want to go to? How do I get them to wait in line for this thing that's about to happen, right? And so you can imagine that like you don't give the same message to every friend in your group, right? So the CD4 yeah. cells literally activating and are giving out different signals to try to monitor to mount a specific type of immune response. So they get out different cytokines to, to regulate the CD8 cells and the, you know, the B cells and the macrophages and the T cells and they all, the, the reg cells. So they do this. And, you know, the way I think about it with a friend group analogy is like your CD8 cells, like they hear the news and like, where, when I'm there. And they just go there, right? They're just kind of like, like, they're just ready. They're a little too like hyper, they're overactive, but they just like, they just want to go. Like, they're like puppies. They just need the right direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then your B cells are, they're so ready to go, but they're more chill. Like they're your cool friend where like, they show up a little bit late. They don't really get their hands dirty. You know, they just go to the bone marrow and they secrete cytokine, like secrete antibodies. They secrete good vibes. So mm -hmm. they're your friends that are cool. 
and you want your cool friends to show up so the party gets alive, they just, they're vibes. They're just in the corner submitting vibes. They're your super cool friends. And then your CDA friend is a super hyper friend. And then your CD reg friend is a friend that, again, doesn't want to go out at all, ever. And then you wonder, like, why are we all friends? Why are we doing this? And then the macrophages are the ones that, like, don't. They're just like, okay, well, we can get sushi if you want to. Whatever you want. Let's just do it, guys. Hey, guys, why are you so mad? Maybe we should calm down. Or, like, hey, maybe we should go out to eat this time because we went out, you know, we did this other thing the last few times. I think we should all be happy, right? They balance the immune responses. And it all works because you need your whole friend group to make the party happen to, yeah. and also to make sure the party ends because if you always listen to the CD8 cell, mm-hmm. you'll be out forever. So you need that person who never wants to go out in the first place so that you actually go home. It wraps it up. Wrap it up, right? <laughs> and then you need your CD8 cell because you'd never go out. And so that's exactly how your immune system functions. And I think some people will say, well, how can you didn't mention the other cells? Like, well, you know how like, Some people are friends of you, but you're not friends of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like they're like the friends you talk to when you're pissed off of your other friends. They're really this entourage, but then you go right back to your other friends, you know, like they're good friends, but you really just need like, they have a good car and you don't have a car and you want to go like to the store. (laughs) So that's what the neutrophils are like, you know, like they're just waiting and ready and in action. And when you need that one thing, then you go for the basophil or the eosinophil. Or the natural killer cell. Like, he, those are backup friends. <laughs> they're not in, like, your inner circle. You know? They're not the inner circle. Exactly. They're kind of like, you're like, let me talk to you really quickly because I'm getting pissed off by the other people. Right? They're entourage. <laughs> they fill the party and it's good that they're there. But also, like, you know, you know, thank you. I, I we, We're done now. So... <laughs> Oh my gosh, I absolutely love this. This is like, you know, proper science nerdy stuff that I live for. <laughs> right? Proper science, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but but your immune system, I think when you think about mounting responses, motivating and the cytokines being the things that motivate the different responses, and then thinking about how you might then try to engineer responses, because like I think everyone's had the, an example of like, you have a friend group, but you don't want to invite Sheila this time because Sheila doesn't like, Sheila doesn't talk to Steve, but you need to see to be somewhere. So you try not to tell the other person, right? So think about when you, that's what adjuvants are. Adjuvants are mounting specific immune responses where you're like, you're like I want a TH2 response this time, or I want a TH1 response, right? Yeah. And that's really like making sure you get the right ones in the room. Um, At the party. At the party, yeah. Like, you don't want the person at the party who's just like, ugh, uh, they're going to complain about the music. Just go home, Steve. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like I could sit here and talk about <laughs> We could spiral and keep going here. I know. But I think it, I find it helpful for talking to people. and But also kind of centering why I think the macrophages are important. Because you're. this is where basic friends finally win. Uh, sorry, maybe basic doesn't, I'm not sure if that translates. Like, yeah, they're yeah. most, like, simple, like, easygoing friends because they kind of make the friend group work. But they are necessary to keep things going. And when your friend, when you don't have that person that's easygoing, like, you know, that one day that they're just not feeling it and they're not, they're like, why are you so upset? And then everyone else is thrown off because <laughs> they don't know what to do. Like, that's kind of like what's happening with disease. Your, your responses aren't right. Like, you're either... 
you know, SARS-CoV and COVID-19 disease, and you have these cytokine release storms, which are basically the CD8 T cell parties and activating this whole, the whole TH1 response in it. You know, you're not having enough CD regulatory responses. Um, cancer is too much of a, a reg situation where like you actually need a party and like you just got like um, Dungeons and Dragons or like Netflixing and chilling, but Netflix and chill <laughs> means something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not that kind of party. <laughs> anyway, I think this is really fun and I find it really good to help people understand what's happening to give them a better sense of thinking about how immune cells work together. And also what we're trying to do to make them work better, because I think we understand relationships between friends and those types of dynamics and then think about how do we engineer those responses. Yeah, no, definitely. It's such a great analogy and great way to look at it. And like you said, it probably helps you work out those relationships as well, because you're thinking about it like friends at a, at a party. Um, but Liz, I, I also want to kind of ask you some questions, I suppose, about academia in general and, you know, what drives this passion for learning and why do you love what you do? But also, are there aspects that you find stressful? <laughs> Sorry, we don't have enough time for this one. Um, I love learning. Um, lifelong nerd here. I think the reason why I'm in academia, I would say, is I love helping other people find that passion that they enjoy. So helping people realize that they too can do things like this is really exciting. Like it's like their own personal journey and you're kind of trying to be a steward of that. And I think what I don't like is um, probably also means what I'm learning because the faculty level is, there's a lot that it takes to make that process happen. And there's a lot of struggles where uh, I think, I frequently think about how, we kind of sell academia as this place for training of students and learning. And there's another side of it that is also like employee, deadline, grants, funding, money. So, so they're both there. And I think that the intersection of them is not always pleasant. And sometimes not always, and it's always, and sometimes it's unpleasant when you least expect it to kind of show up. I think that is challenging because not everyone knows because again, we sell it as being something that's like, you're just here to learn. And it's whenever you're ready to learn <laughs> and then, like, but you know, this grant is due and you know, papers and publications and like, we need to be right to publish. So the duality it is challenging to live in that yeah. And I, you know, I know because you, you host your own podcast or co-host PhD Divas. Am I getting that right? No, no, that's right. So yeah. And there's kind of the topics like you, you cover a range of topics. Um, but one of the ones which I suppose resonate with me is this whole idea of like imposter syndrome, which I think everybody feels at some point. And I think academia is probably one of the hardest careers to have imposter syndrome in because you're trying to sell yourself and grants and stuff, you know, the way like it's in, but then inside you might be like, I'm no good. I have been surprised looking at my mentors and seeing how they were confident even when they felt like they were not confident. They just spun things really well. And I was like, whoa, this is masterclass level stuff. <laughs> like I just read the same review you did. I read the same comments back on this review, on this paper that you got. And you were like, oh, that's okay. Well, we can still resubmit. And I was like, they literally just said this was trash. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, so I do think that like somehow being successful here means kind of working with the duality of that, like the faking it till you make it, thinking of yourself as a work in progress. Yeah. 
And in that sense, it's okay if you're, you feel uncomfortable now because tomorrow you won't be, or the next day or next week, because you're kind of working on something. Imposter syndrome. Yes. Everyone suffers from it. I think I've also benefited from being able to see people that people that I thought were never imposters admitting that they felt like an imposter kind of helped me realize that this is a normal feeling and Mm -hmm. that I would almost even argue that the people who are the most successful feel like the most like imposters. <laughs> I mean, I haven't done the math to make that correlation, but it feels like they are not spared from it at all. What I found interesting in my own experiences is that I find it interesting when other people try to tell me I have imposter syndrome when I don't. And I, so what I mean here is I think imposter syndrome is temporal. Like you're not always feeling like you don't belong. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting is like the moments when I feel like I belong or like the problem isn't that I don't believe I should be here. The problem is my experiment's just not working. <laughs> like there are these moments like it's just not working, but that doesn't mean I don't feel qualified to answer the question. Or I should leave my program. And I think sometimes women underrepresented minorities and people on those intersections often get t- told they're being imposters and they don't belong when what they're really saying is I need help with a problem, not saying I don't feel like I don't deserve help with that problem. And I think like the messaging we give ourselves about this and like when we ascribe it to ourselves, I just think it's important to think through because I've also seen people beat themselves down when it's a systemic issue. Like you feel terrible, not because you're terrible, but because the system is terrible to women. Mm -hmm. And it's important to kind of realize where that burden should fall. And it's not always like directly on your shoulders. And, you know, actually, as you're speaking there, this episode is kind of spurred on because um, we want to highlight hashtag Black and Immuno Week. And Black and Immuno is kind of showcasing and I suppose amplifying the voice of Black immunologists for the first time they've done this kind of showcase and, and a week which is, is happening this week. So I suppose, I don't know, do you want to talk to me a little bit about, you know, how you feel about amplifying and increasing the diversity in the scientific community um, and maybe your experiences with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Next week is Black and Immuno Week. It's a global collective community of Black immunologists, people who work at the interdisciplines, such as myself and immunoengineering, and other allies. Uh, it's going to be a week-long celebration to amplify the scientific work. There are going to be lots of opportunities to engage with Black immunologists, both in academic re- institutions, researchers, companies, scientific societies. And it's just really going to be an exciting time to connect it's going to be part of what has been a wide movement of highlighting um, or highlighting that there are Black scientists in those communities. And I think this is incredibly important because from a trainee perspective, I'm really excited about this because I think people need to see what they, not, not just see what they could be, but see the ranges of what is already happening and seeing that they fit into the spectrum of Black scientists. When I was a student, I actually gravitated towards Twitter because it was one of the first times that I was meeting other Black scientists. Even if they weren't in my field, it felt like when I was in a space where I was the only one in the room, I would go online. It was like, oh my God, they're all here. Oh my goodness, and we like the same music. So I I believe that this is really impactful for the students, the trainees, um, the, the future professors of the world to see what's happening. And it's important for people in the field uh, who are colleagues to see that this is happening too, because they need to know that, you know, this whole thing about, oh, well, there's any qualified candidates. <laughs> like it's complete 
complete insert, you know, harsh words here <laughs> that that's actually true because it's, it's not true. And so it's a way of saying, do your work. And, you know, I just also want to commend them because the amount of effort it takes to organize these events, mm. a lot of students get swayed away from doing things like this. They're told it's not valuable. They're told that the only work that'll count is what's in the lab. And I hope that everyone who's listening, not just about Black and Amino, but they recognize that the, or, these are some of the best well conferences I have seen. Like they are amazing. The type of like organization and outreach and unified and the funding that they've done, the outreach to companies. I think everything they're doing is exactly what you'd want in a professor, frankly, because all I do is write grants, raise money and mentor people. So, you know, like, these are the skills you want people to have already had. And they're doing this on top of being in a pandemic on top of doing their research. So it's just really great to see like the numbers and see the community. If you remember again, when I was a kid, my fascination with history and that moment where I said to myself, I wish that I were born at this time frame so I could take part in this experience. What I think is fascinating about this is that it does matter who's in the room. And it matters who does the science. Science often likes to pretend as though pipettes don't care what race, origin, gender, age, you know, disability status, sexuality, they don't care. But the reality is like, but who asks the questions and who do they include in their surveys? What environmental factors do they include? And I think these are questions that really demand that you have different people at the table answering these questions. And secondly, when they do ask the questions, they need to be treated just as valuably when it comes to the grant review process <laughs> and getting the jobs as other diseases and other treatments, other other cases of interest that we see. Yeah, no. And I think the points you bring up there are, are so relevant. And if anyone is, is interested, like you said, next week is there's a week long kind of celebration. There's TEDx style talks. There's um, interviews with different people highlighting and showcasing scientific research and the scientific contribution of uh, black immunologists. So it, it's going to be it's going to be an exciting week. And I'm really I'm really happy and excited to be a small, tiny part um, of that uh, celebration. A huge part. <laughs> um, but Liz, you know, one of my last questions for you is if you weren't a scientist and if you weren't in the position you are now, where do you think your life would have ended up or what job or career do you think you would have had? Uh, um, so I was going to say a different type of academic. Maybe I would have been in this, the humanities because I love history so much. I think I would have tried to be a writer. So still a job that I won't get paid a lot of money in. <laughs> I think I would have... I don't know, maybe tried to be a, a writer or a doctor or I don't know, maybe in politics or something. I don't know. It's a hard question. People often struggle with it because they're like, I've never considered what I would be doing. I mean, I've I'll be clear. I've considered it because I've almost like not made it to the next stage of my career at every stage. You have to have these moments where like, oh my God, is this not going to work? Am I really not? Do I want to still be here? Do I want to do this? What am I going to do? So I've considered it and definitely have been afraid. I was like, I don't know if I have any other actual real skills. <laughs> um, and it's like, I do, but I can translate them. Right. So I mean, I'm thinking like science policy because the skills I have in terms of writing and speaking and like organizing and engaging are, are still transferable to other things. Well, I mean, obviously it's worked out well and you've, you have tried working. <laughs> You'll get, I'll, I'll, you know, touch back base with you in like a year's time and you'll be, no, I'm, I'm actually in politics. 
<laughs> the next president of the, of the U.S. Maybe that's a lot. <laughs> that job sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't fancy taking that on. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> um, but listen, Liz, it's been lovely to talk to you, and thank you so much again for for taking the time to chat to me today. No, this was great. Thank you so much, Megan. It was great. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.